right (laughs) whoa whoa is right yeah how different is that you are listening to end if love remains a unique show spotlighting people ideas science culture and art your host mike lovett you know what rachel you are right this is mike lovett you are listening to end if love remains the great podcast in the sky, and I have with me <laughs> the maestro of music, the king of keys, the prince of pianism, Mr. Elias Axel Pedersen. Welcome back to the show, Elias. Thanks, Mike. You come up with new epithets every time. It's great. Um, <laughs> well, you know, got to keep it, keep it real, you know? I know. <laughs> I can't imagine. We've done so many of these. This is awesome. And I think today we're going to fly by the seat of our pants a little bit. You know what? But sometimes that works out the best, you know. That is, and, and we'll try to keep our pants on, even if we're fine. By- <laughs> it's a podcast. It's audio. Okay. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> we're going to be talking about classical music. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty incredible. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, this is this is going to be really cool. And the, and and one of my um, what one of the things when I first started this this podcast is I wanted people to start to understand as if they listen to the show, like what makes greatness great mm-hmm. and why is something great and why is it worth pursuing if not necessarily on a, a, a skill level at least mm-hmm. on an intellectual level like why why should we pursue listening to great music and great musicians mm-hmm. um and so i so one of the things that that um um that i wanted to talk about and maybe ha- and and definitely like have you have you chat about is is you know, taking some pieces of music that's that's relatively known and um, or well known, and and introducing them, but maybe introducing some different ideas and some different um, uh, different takes on them. I guess if you mm-hmm. will. Yeah. So literally, uh, those listening, I just sent him a uh, a copy of different files, YouTube, you know, videos that are widely available. Uh, many of the recordings we're going to listen to and talk about are quite famous, and I did that partly on purpose. And uh, when when we were discussing what to talk about today, and Mike, you said we should do some sort of reaction video, which that's kind of yeah. one of the, one of the things to do today. And and I certainly do this uh, in my class with my class piano sections at school, where we might listen to uh, a famous recording and then talk about it a little bit and see what you know their reactions are, because I think we we don't uh, or we take for granted what we as classically classically trained musicians or just trained musicians uh, what we hear and what we perceive we sort of take that for granted and don't realize that a lot of people don't have that training so don't know what to listen for um don't know which nuances to listen to etc cetera, etc cetera. uh so yeah i think we well we'll have a little bit of fun going through some some famous pieces and kind of dissecting them a little bit today yeah, it will be fun. I'm I'm very excited. So, um, we're gonna we're gonna do this in in kind of order of of um, uh, time frame. So we're gonna start sure. back in the Baroque area. Area. Listen to me. Wow, <laughs> I am a musician. Um, <laughs> Baroque era. <laughs> it's okay. It's late. We're doing this podcast in the evening. It's all good. Oh yeah, especially yeah. for me. But yeah. yeah, we're gonna do this. We're we're and and um and and. I, you know, most of the time when people think of Baroque music, if they think of it at all, mm-hmm. they're they're going to think 
really one of one of three um, composers, and that's uh, you know Bach, of course, Handel, mm-hmm. and maybe Vivaldi. If you're familiar mm-hmm. with the Four Seasons, yeah. Um, but you you brought in a piece by Scarlatti, so um, which I'm excited about. So so talk a little bit about him and and his and he's a great composer, and, sure. and I'd love to to talk to you a little bit about him and his keyboard works. Yeah, I, I think that's a good intro. Like you said, um, when we talk about, first of all, classical music, that's a pretty broad term. And when you delve into it, you can break it down into smaller eras, you know, if we're working chronologically. Um, and there is actually a classical era with a capital C, and that we'll be uh, discussing maybe a little bit later today. But um, if we if we're talking more about keyboard works, which I know we're both pianists, so I like to delve into keyboard works. Um, we really go back to the Baroque era. Of course, before this, uh, which we're talking about Renaissance music and a- even ancient music, you're going back into the 13, 14, 1500s, but the Baroque era really comes in around 1600. And it's it's just useful to delineate these and 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 put some time, um, some markers on there because, of course overlap is going to happen. The composers that are living in one era aren't going to suddenly shift or change when another era arrives. Um, the styles are going to are going to gradually shift over time, but it's just helpful to to look at some of the characteristics. So one well, of the characteristics, but you can see like how um, the these different genres of art music or, or concert music or classical music, mm-hmm. you know, how um, just how they they have shifted over time um and how they've over time become like i don't know it's been they they they've changed more rapidly if that makes sense sure like you can see yeah. like the baroque period um you you have this like um style of music that that is is working for it and then you kind of run into this classical era and that's and you see quite a bit of change there and then the romantic era and changes just happening all over the place. And then of course you get into the, some of the modern and you know, it, it absolutely explodes of just like, it's all mm-hmm. about change. Um, yeah. Where we're in the back in the, the Renaissance and the, and the broke music, it wasn't about change. It was, a, a, in fact, it was about trying to keep a steady state if anything. Yeah. A lot of it has to do with um, technology and just how information is spread. And so, um, back in the 1600s, we're thinking of people like Bach that you mentioned and Handel, and they had they had um, patrons, and they were working for either noblemen or for the church. Um, Bach was a great organist, and so he played at uh, the main church, and uh, people would come from cities all around to listen to him play. But those were pretty stable jobs, and and they uh, had a lot of patronage and made money to making music, and so things weren't maybe developing as fast of course in his own life and in his own pieces you do see growth and development and he wrote he wrote a ton but um the baroque period is roughly 150 years and classical is a little shorter and then you know romantics is maybe even shorter than that and once we get into the 20th century a lot of styles just explode uh, and even into the the late 20th century there are so many different things and styles uh, right. Some people don't even consider a lot of that music. It's more philosophy, but uh, that's maybe for another time. But yeah, anyway, we'll we'll talk about the Baroque era first. Uh, again, and I think one last thing, because you mentioned technology, I, yeah. before we get into the music, is really important. Is 
is we're going to be listening to, I believe we're going to be listening to um, pianists who are playing this music. And yeah. of course, in the Baroque period, they didn't have, and really all of this music up until a modern time, they didn't have piano until the late romantic period. They didn't have pianos like we have pianos today. And right. so even though we're hearing it on a pristine, beautiful piano, it doesn't necessarily mean that's how they heard it. Right. In fact, I would urge you to listen um, in class. We, we did a project on these particular pieces that we'll hear today. And I played for my class three different versions. Today, we're going to just talk about two because they are on piano. But the third version was on harpsichord, which would have been the original instrument uh, these were written for. Now, it could be argued that some were written for organ, in, uh, or at least with the organ in mind. Certainly a lot of Bach pieces, sure. some of the suites had, uh, and the toccatas and all that had organ in mind, but uh, certainly harpsichords were, and even clavichords, but they're Clavichord. such quiet yeah. instruments. Uh, harpsichords were really the concert instruments, or recital instruments of well, the time. And Bach, because of his, he was said he was a church musician. The organ would have been primarily sure. his, his, I think, uh, a big part of his repertoire. Um, yeah. And also, if you look at these music, they don't say necessarily for clavichord or for harpsichord. Mm -hmm. They say for keyboard. Right. Um, right. Exactly. So it, for it really clavier, it's a little keyboard. more open. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. It right, like you said for clavier, but it's it's interesting. I'm glad clavier. you kind of brought that up because um, for for a keyboard instrument. Really, we think of just the the keys on a piano right now, which, by the way, are the reverse colors of what they might have been on a on a harpsichord. But um, on on some harpsichords, and certainly on organs, there are multiple keyboards, what we call manuals, and that actually has a lot to do with this particular piece we're listening to, because there are some things that um, that give indications to the fact that Scarlatti probably wrote it for a two manual harpsichord and not a one manual harpsichord. Oh, uh, that's fantastic. So, anyway. All right, well, let's get into it. Talk, talk okay. about this piece. So Scarlatti, great uh, great harpsichordist, uh, clavier performer and uh, and composer. His father actually was quite a well-known composer, Alessandro Scarlatti. But this is Domenico, the younger, and born in also 1685, same year as Handel, same year as Bach, the three uh, giants of the keyboard world, at least. Vivaldi was very famous, but he didn't write much keyboard stuff but three keyboard giants of the Baroque era. And um, Scarlatti wrote, I, I don't know if every, anybody's ever found the exact number, but around or close to 600 sonatas for keyboard. Now, these were smaller works than, say, a Mozart or even a Beethoven sonata, which has a different form in the classical era. These works, these sonatas by Scarlatti, were mostly binary forms, an A section and a B section. And we're going to listen to one of them, so they would Indeed. have even been shorter than like this, like the Clementi Sonatina. Oh, oh much, much shorter. Yeah. Even a yeah. Clementi Sonatina, which a lot of younger, you know, beginning students might play as their fourth or fifth piece. Um, those are typically two or three movements. And even the first movement has, you know, a, an exposition, a development and a recapitulation. Um, right. Although they're short. But yeah, th these are even shorter pieces in some, in some ways. So I think what we could do is listen to one of the versions and uh, maybe just a little bit, we can see where to stop and get a, a sense or a taste of what it sounds like. Sure. And then we'll so we're compare. Go, we're going to be listening to. Um, Let, let's try the Michelangeli first, actually, if we can. Okay. The Michelangeli. So this is the Sonata in B minor uh, K 27. Is that right? Yeah. 
Okay, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about that in a little bit. But yeah, this is by a pianist, Arturo Benedetto Michelangeli, who is a great pianist of the 20th century. And actually, it's fun. I is he's one of my favorite all time pianists. Um, and it, as it so happens, one of my teachers, my last teacher I studied with in Montreal, uh, Paul Stewart, um, studied with Michelangeli uh, for a couple of years in Florence. And uh, yeah, I wow. got some cool all stories right, well, and advice from that. Here he is playing Scarlatti. I wanted us to go back. So you might have noticed um, we heard just then what we heard at the very beginning. So basically there was a repeat. The A section repeats and plays again. Um, and we just got to this section where you can hear a low note and then crossing over to a very high note, where, whereas you have in the middle part of the piano, just a kind of accompaniment, a 16th note pattern. And the bass, bum, 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 these uh, continuous A's. That's the indication, I think, that it might have been written for two mm. manuals. Because uh, if you have two manuals on a harpsichord, one of them is is higher uh, than the other right. one. It's just offset. And it would be much easier to just play on that manual. The, the left hand kind of cross. It doesn't really cross over so much. And then the right hand on the lower manual. Right. Um, instead, of, instead of crossing your hand completely yes. over the octave. Yeah. So in, in a piano, it's much more difficult um, and the action is quite a bit heavier on a piano than a, on a harpsichord. So you've got to move your left hand pretty quickly here. Um, anyway, I thought also... Well, this some, and this is some remarkable playing. I mean, yeah, th th I, this is about as quick as I think you'd want to play this. <laughs> yeah, so that's partly why I played this first. It's very exciting. It yeah. has a lot of energy. Um, I also chose pieces that I've either performed a lot or recorded myself. So I, because I, I feel that I have an intimate knowledge of them and then we can talk about all the little nuances and uh, what Michelangeli does here with just the, the control is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. It's very even, but also the voicing and how things are shaped. Uh, it's, it's so beautiful. And at this speed, when he, when he switches or, or crosses over with his left hand, um, in the place we just heard and the place is just coming up, there are a lot of very fast harmonic shifts and it's very easy to blur those with a pedal on a modern piano uh, because notes, they last longer on a, on a modern or standard piano than they right. would have on a, on a harpsichord. Um, and of course, harpsichords didn't have foot pedals like we do now. So it's very hard to make this sound clear and clean and um, kind of that the Baroque sound, if we, if you will, uh, so that it's very clear and not staccato necessarily, but yeah, just the clarity without any of the yeah, muddiness of clear. the butter. Uh, uh, um, 
but I will say like having the, that quick, um, it's not an Alberti base, but that quick uh, middle section of the right of, hand, yeah. It, yeah. it's, it's, it's so fast and so exciting um, yeah. that by the time you get done with that first section and you back, get back, I'm so glad that he takes the repeat. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah like, it's very nice. You need, to, you need to kind of take your breath and go, okay, I'd like to hear that again and see what I just missed. Yeah. Um, and what we'll hear in the second section, we'll, we'll go through from where we stopped if possible. Um, and then we'll hear the, the same theme come in, but in a slightly different key. So you'll be like, oh, I kind of think I remember that. I heard that and, and we'll hear it again. So maybe we can continue. Just a, just a hair. I love this section here. Yeah, did you, did you want to say something about that? Oh yeah, I don't know if it, it's if you can even hear my talking over the piece if if that comes through clearly. But yeah, I just I love that section and that's where um where you have to pedal so quickly. And there's so yeah. much that's going on in the upper fingers. So in piano technique, it's very easy to control or easier to control one, two, and three. But four and five, to uh, make them clear and and have control with those and have as much power, you know, with, with your weight balance on the outer extremities of your hand, that's very difficult. And he just has so much control for, with the outer parts of his hand. Yeah. And it really gives that feel of that bounce. It's it's not a syncopation mm -hmm. necessarily, but do you really feel that bounce and that excitement? Um, mm -hmm. The da 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 da. You know that 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 rhythmic feel um, in that melody uh, on the mm -hmm. upper part of the hand that just that just really kind of wakes you up. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, well, maybe we can listen to the end of of the section. We won't have to hear the repeat of the B section, but at least we hear um, how it sort of finalizes. Okay. Okay, I have to say something right here though. Sure. And this is I this is the one thing that, that I pay attention to when I'm talking when I think about composers and how they kind of manipulate our brains. Um, mm -hmm. If you notice there, how he stays on that chord mm -hmm. um, just a little bit longer than you expect it, and it just creates this tension that that motif dun 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 dun, and it just it just kind of builds into into you're just waiting for them to make that change. And mm -hmm. it, that's always exciting to me. I, I love that. Yeah. When I get to that place, when I play, I always have to remember once I get there, okay, there are seven of these. And then the eighth one, he kind of uh, eighth measure, whatever he goes off. And I love that. It just, it, it does stay there for a little while. You get into this suspended mode and yeah. then he goes on from there and it, it quickly moves. So I love that Very that cool. section. Right. So that yeah, good point. Right. And and also in this section, since it repeats so many times, uh, on a harpsichord you wouldn't be able to do much in terms of the the dynamics. 
since you couldn't right. control that, but you could do a little bit with the uh, length of the notes, maybe the articulation, you know, holding some notes to in increase dynamics. But with the piano, you can do a lot. And he, he shapes that like one big wave, which yes. I love. Um, oh, the, this whole, uh, yeah, his, his ability to create um, layers of waves going through from, from the, from, you know, so the, the, um, the melody um, and even in the bass, like you just, mm -hmm. you're feeling like this, this, um, like a surge or something. Yeah. It's the like waves, a surge yeah. of, 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 uh, dynamics. Mm -hmm. Um, it's really, really cool. And, and, and again, you said it before the, his control of the accompaniment section is just yeah. so beautiful and it just fills everything out. Yeah. Maybe we can back up a tiny bit just to hear that, that one repeated thing. So sure. people can get that in their ears again and, and see what he does with it. pause it there okay. uh interesting at the very end too he has this figuration and you're repeating a note so repeating a note on the piano is actually a very difficult technique on uh, on violin it's very easy technique you you just change the bow and on uh, on a wind instrument it's it's relatively tough too to go so fast but you can repeat notes but uh piano you know repeating notes is is tough so it's interesting well, he puts that in there and, and to, to explain it's because it's it's because you have to maintain the balance on the key mm -hmm. it's really hard to lift your finger and bring it back down quickly and maintain that balance yeah so in that section there's actually it's written in the score with a different stem on the repeated note which means you would play it with your other uh, other hand so right. you get two hands at least working now again this is where i think it would be maybe a little easier with two manuals yeah, maybe not. I don't yeah. know, but you could just do one like arpeggiated thing in the in one hand, and just do the filigree with the other hand, and you don't We're get just in the way. We're making it too hard on ourselves, Elias. That's right. We <laughs> should play harpsichord again. Right. Actually, I played a lot of harp. I I do like harpsichord, but uh, oh, very yeah. different to play. It is and, I, the first time I played a harpsichord. I, I about lost my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So much right, back so light. just a hair. Here we go. Yeah. So let, well, I think. I think that's okay because uh, I think that's okay because it's just going to repeat. So I thought okay, maybe yeah. we'll we'll just talk a little bit, you know, about the 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 next piece. I mean, the next version of it because now we've heard at least this version and we've kind of delved into what some of the technical challenges are. Um, so so yeah, and 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 talk about like I mentioned like this is probably just about as quick on the piano that you would you would ever want to play it without it getting too mushy not not having that clarity um in my opinion i agree um, but but uh you know possibly on a harpsichord you could get away with a little bit faster um, maybe but, but I, actually when i hear harpsichord versions they're typically slower okay yeah okay and that was why i was going to ask you know from you know how you you performed it or how you hear other performers perform it uh -huh. um this is on the fast side or, or is this pretty typical? This is on the fast side. And, and I would say I play it 
not quite this fast, a little slower, but there are a couple recordings out there that play it this fast. Maybe, maybe even one or two, it's tight, like a click faster. But yeah, I, I don't see it really going much faster um, than this and being even and, and clear and shaped as, as beautifully. Um, but yeah, I, yeah, it'd be very I, hard I think, to get those shapes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I don't know how he does it. Yeah. But I think that that leads into the next one, which is so vastly different and by another great pianist and, uh, with a totally different approach. And in fact, if you didn't know it was the same piece that we were playing, if I just played them back to back or with, you know, with an hour gap, I, I think a lot of non-musicians wouldn't even recognize it. They wouldn't recognize they heard the same piece. Sometimes I do this as a trick with my students, even in class, we'll, we'll play one version and I'll say, okay, what'd you guys think of this piece? Um, I usually start with this, the faster version, this Michelangelo. And then I play the other piece. And I say, okay, here's another piece. What do you guys think of this? And they describe it and talk about it. And I say, yeah, that was the same piece. I say, what? It sounded much different. How? Like, how can you have such a different interpretation from the same music? You know, I think a lot of, let's say, non-musicians don't understand the the breadth of of possibilities that you can have from the same music being written out. Uh, because of the lack of uh, indications or maybe certain indications that you could interpret. Well, and, yeah. Talk about this for a second, because I find this fascinating. Um, the, the Baroque period, you, and you, you see a little bit more in the classical era, but not so much. Um, but in the Baroque period, you see very little indication of markings. I think a lot of that has to do because you're not dealing with a pianoforte or, or a piano. Mm -hmm. You're dealing with an instrument that has a very limited dynamic capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, um, but that lead, but not, but even there's not a lot of, there's no temple markings, um, or if there is, it's, it's really limited. Um, and, and, I, and as you, one of the things that I've noticed from composers, as we get later and closer to the modern era is they, they become, um, much more, um, <laughs> they're, they're, I, I won't say this as, as a, as a, as a general rule, mm -hmm. well, let me put it this way. Beethoven used to write his own cadenzas, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. and it was like, wait a sec, that was supposed to be kind of an improv for the musician to do. Um, yeah. Or yeah. So, so um, it, they become, they became much more fastidious about exactly what yeah. dynamic marking, what tempo marking, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, yeah. Beethoven more was more controlling today. Yeah, Beethoven was probably the quintessential one, and I think he really turned the tide a lot. He he gave so many indications. If you compare um, somebody like Bach, Bach gave quite a bit, but also if you look at his keyboard works versus his, let's say, orchestral works, he's not going to give as many indications for dynamics in his keyboard works because you know that you couldn't do it. Or if it was for right. organ, maybe the the different stops or the setups would be indicated. Uh, but a lot of that was just, okay, here's a, the basic score. You know, you do what you need to with it. And well, he was that, playing his own music. How much of how much of that, it, it was just understood. Like, like for yeah, example, when I go through the band, I understand what, you know, they, they don't have to tell me that it's swung. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> like, sure. I just know that. Um, yeah. And so I, think, so I wonder how much how much is that, and and so we we take the, the lack of indication today to give us carte blanche to 
play with whatever, which isn't a bad thing. I'm just saying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, it's got to be, yeah, tempered. I think that's exactly it, that he knew his his performers, he knew his audiences, and he was playing his own music. Um, And that happened a lot, Baroque, even into classical era. It wasn't until really the Romantic era that people started playing pieces written by composers of previous eras. That was just so weird. yeah, that that was late romantic. Like even Rachmaninoff paid, played his own pieces and didn't play much other people's. I don't think. No, well, he no, he played a, a fair amount of other things. Okay, but but people like Liszt really start. Uh, they really spearheaded a lot of that. And um, Chopin, I mean, he only played what two two dozen or three dozen uh, recitals in public. Liszt played over a thousand or two thousand, maybe. Uh, he would revive people like Bach. Mendelssohn also had a quite a Bach revival. Yes. Um, but at the time, Mendelssohn would play his pieces and maybe some of Fanny Mendelssohn's pieces. His sister, who was a great, actually, she would play them too. She was a great musician. And uh, Robert Schumann, he would compose, although he kind of lost his uh, left-hand abilities. So his wife, Clara Schumann, one of the greatest pianists of the era, would play his pieces and maybe some Chopin and maybe some Liszt, maybe some Brahms. But they all were pianist composers or musician composers and would play their own pieces or pieces by their friends and contemporaries. Rarely would you hear a Bach recital in the mid-1800s. It just was weird. Um, And nowadays, it's just pretty – it's, in fact, rare the other way. It's very rare to go to a piano recital where the pianist has written the music. Um, I can only think of a few great concert pianists now that are really – fantastic um, uh, composers or arrangers. Uh, one is Marc-André Amelin that he just came to Scottsdale actually and performed one of his new pieces. He wrote a couple of years ago and it was wonderful, but uh, Volodos and, you know, Babayan has some, some transcriptions and uh, you know, we've talked about some other, other pianists who have some transcriptions of things that are wonderful, but it's not their mainstay. Uh, because we have to specialize so much. It takes so much work to play all the stuff that's already been written for our instrument. Yeah. So Well, okay. So let's talk about this, the second Scarlatti. Yeah. We kind of go down these rabbit holes. It's great. (laughs) Yeah. So this, this does, like you say, it gives, since there are not many indications, it gives us a little bit of carte blanche to, um, to interpret and this next pianist is from the the very rich sort of golden age of pianism in the mid 1900s or early to mid 1900s. His name is Emil Gilles, and um, actually two of his, his I think it's like great grand niece and nephew or some something like that. They they go to my school and I, I teach oh. them. And there's some connection to him, um, and their father actually met him. It's it's a fascinating story which I won't oh, get wow. into. But uh, Gilles is one of my favorite pianists as well, especially from this era. And he was one of the first Soviet pianists to come to the West and represent Soviet Russia. And he was sort of one of their prides, you know, it's a pride and joy. And he played a tremendous amount of repertoire. And from, from Baroque era to even contemporary, he was premiering pieces by Prokofiev and Kachaturian and Shostakovich, all these these people that were his contemporaries, but he takes a very, what I would say romantic approach to this Scarlatti Sonata. And I won't say much more, but we'll listen to it and then see what people think. Okay, here we go. (laughs) 
and pause it there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So different, but so many, you know, great things too. I love both of these recordings. So anyway, what do you think? I don't know if you've heard this version before. I haven't. So I'll tell you, first of all, just from a, um, just my initial thought is it is so much more contemplative and reverent mm-hmm. um, compared to the, the first version. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you know, um, and, and I, my other thought was as I'm listening to it, how in some ways, how much harder it must be to play it like that in some um, ways. Yeah. Yeah. It is so to, to create those lines and, and layers of sound that he's creating is really, really difficult. The pedaling is just spot on and, um, there's just some beautiful, beautiful playing, but it, it is it is very different. Yeah, it's almost. I think I looked at the timings for both of them, and the first version by Michelangeli, it's something like two and a half minutes or two twenty. Yeah, two thirty three. Two thirty. Okay, and then the Gilels is five something. It's like five. This is it's four four fifty five. It's right at five minutes. Oh, okay. Yeah, this yeah. one, and I've heard a live version. Um, of him and I, I think it's around that maybe even maybe even a tiny bit slower he does speed up a very a uh, little bit at the end of the a section there yeah uh, where we have those repeated notes but you hear those repeated notes very clearly and each one has its own time and place um and that section we talked about before that has a seven times repeating where you cross over you really hear the levels you hear that that top note really ping out like a bell and you hear the right. bass note, like a low drum or something. And the middle, even he brings out the, he even brings out the top note of the middle um, voice, yes. as you will. And so you hear that as like a counter melody. And I think that's just awesome. Um, I totally agree. Yes. It, yeah. it, you hear that. And then, and then you can also hear the, the differences, you know, of you, you the, 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 as, as the difference of each repeat is really mm-hmm evident yeah there's another section that comes right after that where it's really a dialogue in the right hand so the top voice has dum and the bottom voice is going in tandem with that so it's like you know what that is really cool because i'll bet you yeah i i can see where that would be because in the first version that would have been where that you have that kind of um rhythmic syncopated almost feel going on and mm-hmm. and if you slow that down i could see that where that could become a conversation yeah so in this version since it's so slow the second go around we'll we'll try to listen for it i'll give you a heads up yeah and and at this tempo you can really hear a almost a soprano and an alto having a conversation and you hear the ends and the beginnings of each of those um you know the words that are that are silently spoken let's say uh, and I just, I love that. So you can hear so many details at this tempo, um, which which re- he really brings out. So, but like I said, it's a very romanticized. He takes uh, the first iteration of that idea at the beginning, um, that first phrase, he slows down a lot at the end of mm-hmm. that phrase to set up the when we get into the, the proper uh, section, if you will. Um, that's not the technical term, but you'll, you'll hear right. where it is. He slows down and then sets up that B minor chord. So let's, uh, let's then, listen to he, it now. And then, and then he's, as you said, he speed, he takes a great liberty in, in uh, speeding that up, which you would mm-hmm. never do in a, in a, uh, that, um, grad, he gradually speeds up 
mm -hmm. um, that the end of that A section. Yeah. Um, and it, it's pretty cool. So you want me to yeah, back, maybe up back it up a tiny bit? And, yeah. All right, here we go. <laughs> I may not have backed up far enough. That's okay. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah, it goes a little faster. Now back to the repeat. Very slow. And there's retardando. That top note comes out like a bell. Yeah. And then they get that. And here we go. Here's the bass. Like answer. Did it um the theme comes in the left hand. sort of your counter melody in the middle section. Yeah, I love that bass. Here comes the dialogue section. That's so great. Yeah. Here comes the tenor. <laughs> yep, exactly. so yeah. great you, you really oh. hear two different voices it's not or yeah two different parts it's not so much da -da -dum, bum, 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 bum. it's da -da -dum, da -da -dum, yes, he's, and da -da -dum. he's treating it almost as, as as if it were a fugue you know almost yeah and it's funny i've seen different uh versions of the score and i just grabbed one right now before we started and in this one the um some of the notes in that in that theme are stemmed down, so that would be with the left hand, and some are stemmed up, and they alternate, so it's kind of a syncopated thing, which means the left hand would be da 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 dum, and the right hand would be answering da da dum. Uh, yeah, and he really brings that out. So uh, okay, so I want to do something real fast. I sure. want to play the first one again. Because uh -huh. now it's interesting because now you can hear those details. Uh -huh. I want to go back to the first one and see if we can hear those details, even though it's faster. Sure, sure. You know, just see if see see if that that. I think you gain and you lose some things with each tempo. So let's see how it no, goes. I agree, but but I mean, I wonder if 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 our ears would or those who are listening, if, the, if your ears would would catch some of those things that you. Um, yeah, that we you got from the slower. The yeah. Sense. Yeah. So we'll just, I'll just play the beginning of the, of the I'll just begin the, the first A section. Mm -hmm. It's there, but it's tough. Yeah. It's not right. It's not as clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I heard that dialogue later, but uh, Gilel's really milks it for all it's worth. Oh yeah, he yeah. gives. Yeah, he he absolutely gives you every ounce of of <laughs> love 
through yeah. those notes, you know, as much as you can get out of it, he does. And, um, yeah, that's yeah. really beautiful. Okay. Right. Yeah, on. But I, I love them both. I say, I love them both. And I probably play it closer to the Michelangeli version. Um, yeah. when I perform it, but anyway, that just gives you a, a taste of how well, different... you have to be, you, I mean, and this is no disrespect, but you have to be pretty, your ego has to be pretty, uh, strong to play it. <laughs> slow like that. <laughs> like you, you got to be pretty confident yeah. in what you're doing. <laughs> oh yeah, you better know everything. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because if you slip, uh, yeah. Well, even even just like you have to, you have to know. Like you have to be in a position where where you can just handle any kind of criticism. Because if you're gonna yeah. play it like that, um, like you're making a statement, yes. and you have to be ready for. You got to be ready for for people to make a statement back. Yeah, yeah. People can say, "Oh, you you know butchered it. You didn't do it in the style. You took too many liberties. This is not what Scarlatti would have wanted." You know, and and you have to be able to say, "Well, I, I'm going by my interpretation. It, it makes sense." And I think this is where I. I try to teach students there are tasteful ways to interpret things and make sense of it and be internally consistent. And there right. are non-tasteful ways and, and ones that aren't informed by any experience or anything you've done or, or tradition or whatever. Um, and I think in this day and age, we, we get away with a lot of that or people want that. They'll, they'll just say, oh, well, um, this is my interpretation. It's the way I want to do it. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's but can, a, you, it's, but can you explain why? Can you, it's a double-edged split. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword and it's almost a chicken or egg. It's like, well, to get more experience, you have to have, um, you, you have to have more knowledge or whatever, but to get more knowledge, you have to have more experience, that, that sort of thing. And when, when students might play something and it's not quite right, or, or I'll say, well, it's not quite right. They say, what do you mean it's not right? That's my interpretation. I said, well, it doesn't quite fit the style. And and even if we were to go with your interpretation, it has to be consistent throughout. Um, I just had a student right. play- That's from, the problem. Yeah, I had a student play something for me today. And it was a piece that I've performed a lot. Actually, we're going to listen to it next. And he did something which I wouldn't do myself. But the way in which he did it, I said, you know what? That, um, that makes some sense. And I can totally see- how Mozart would have given an A-OK for that, and it kind of makes sense from the score. So let's keep it that way. That's fine. I'm not yeah. going to – of course, I'm going to demonstrate some things that I, I have so they can hear it and say, oh, yeah, uh, you know, there's there's partly some some copying that needs to be done as you learn. Uh, it's Everything's not all new, and, and let's come up with something that's uh, innovative and, and my own. There's a, a bunch of copying that and rote learning – but once you're you're past that, um, a little bit of your own interpretation is okay. But like I said, it has to make sense from the score. It has to make sense from the style. It has to make internal sense um, and consist. It has to be consistent. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's go to this next piece. We're gonna we're gonna jump we're gonna jump 150 years. <laughs> <laughs> Almost. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. So Mo we're going to Mozart, who was uh, 1756 to 1791. Unfortunately, died quite young, but uh, he wrote three. He wrote a ton of music for the piano because he was a touring, a touring virtuoso, and uh, of course, like you said, would not have played on the the modern piano, but what he had would have been at least the new forte pianos and you could do dynamics. It was a larger range than right. the harpsichord. You, you had um, knee pedals and eventually foot pedals probably by the, um, the end of his life. And 
uh, a lot more, you know, a lot more sound for sure. I don't think they had cast iron frames quite yet, but uh, no, uh, the, certainly the power was getting there and the virtuosity was getting there and you see it in this piece. So um, this is a pretty long piece. I don't think we'll play all of it. It's a very famous piece. It's one that, that um, a lot of, uh, you know, early music uh, piano students might play in their second or third year, maybe fourth year of, of study if they're pretty serious. And there are some themes from this that, even uh, even non-pianists will probably recognize. They just don't know it comes from this piece. Um, yeah. The the last thing I'll probably say about it. So it's it's a fantasy. It's in D minor, and it's one of his three fantasies he wrote for piano. He wrote uh, two in C minor that are much longer. This is the shortest one. And I always tell my students when we talk about oh, what do you feel and the character and this and that. There are all these different sections, and and we we kind of discuss what that is, and then I eventually tell them that. I see this as a mini opera, and you and I, I think, have maybe talked about this. Uh, Mozart yes. was such a great opera composer uh, that all of his his ideas from opera, the vocal lines, the singing quality, these beautiful harmonies, which not, aren't necessarily complex, you know, this is still early classical era, um, but he uh, is just so so um, influenced. By the by, the opera genre, and I think this piece is like a mini opera uh, with all oh, the different absolutely. sections. It has like an intro, which would be the overture. It's got the entrance of the the first aria, which is probably the soprano entering. It's got another section where the basso or the baritone is probably singing in response, and and then these. Anyway, it's got so many different sections and characters, and uh, it switches quickly between them. So I urge you, as you listen to it, to kind of imagine your own staging or your own opera or your own different characters in this and uh, and try to follow along the score that way. Yes. All right. Yeah. Well, um, do anyone or which one do you want? Uh, yeah, actually, we have to be very specific for this one because... Uh, let me and just I really check don't here. Have- I have a, something that says live. I, there's one that is. There's one that's um, Radu Lupu. I think that would be a good one to start with. Okay. I have that one. Okay. Uh, wonderful pianist. And uh, he actually, he died uh, last year or, or 2021. I can't remember. I got to see him live in Montreal when I lived there. And he's oh, a wow. phenomenal pianist. I would recommend anybody to, to hear him. But yeah, let's and start with is- the Lupu version. Okay, and I think this is for a live version from 
Maybe we can pause it here if possible. Yeah. Wow. So, That's so, it's, so delicate. Oh. Yeah. You know, I kind of chose this one um, partly on purpose. I, I've heard so many versions of this piece, but I haven't listened to this one um, either. I'm trying to think either in its, its entirety or in a long time because he was doing some things that I was even catching like, oh, that's kind of nice. But uh, yeah, what are, what are your thoughts since you know this piece and you've taught it? And- yeah. Well, it, it, first of all, it's very, like I said, that, that um, the intro, the intro, I, I was just clear and beautiful. It's, it's, a, it's kind of the way that I, that I like to play it. Um, mm. I, I maybe would do it just a hair faster, but I, mm-hmm. I love his intro. It's, it just sets the tone. And, mm-hmm. and here, so here's the thing with me. Here's my problem. I'm mm-hmm. I'm too much of a comic in one way. Like when I hear this piece, I think melodrama. I mm-hmm. think a teenage teenager who's lost their phone for the week. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I think That's like cool. I, I just so so and, and anybody who knows this piece, like when you get through it, like and you hear like the tantrums and the things that go on through this thing. That, that's how I think of it. So and, and yeah. so to yeah. me, it's like all of Mozart's humor coming out in this thing. <laughs> but yeah. um, but. It, but but this version of it specifically was so beautiful and tender when when as you said that that first aria that first part comes up da, 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 da. it's just just gorgeous and clear and 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 the the left hand and the reason I said delicate is because you could all like some of those left hand notes were just just on the edge of mm-hmm. not being played like you're yeah, just yeah. almost not there yeah and it's just like a petal it was just like like a like a rose petal it was just beautiful you're hitting a lot of points i wanted to it's funny you you mentioned the drama and this and you put it into a, a contemporary setting right. which i've never thought well, of when, because when i, when think I teach of, kids this is what i teach them yeah yeah i like that the tantrum the the, the teenager with the cell phone that can't use it and right um that's true gosh when i don't have my phone for a day i i throw fits but um right. yeah I, I of course i'm thinking more in the uh like magic flute or yes. something like that era and which is what mozart would have been thinking too yeah right? you know the, about cell phones <laughs> right r- running into a house and something is disorganized and I, you you mentioned the sort of melodrama and the humor i think that comes uh, later and i think yes. it's uh such a stark contrast to what comes earlier here and like you said the intro i probably play it as well a tiny bit faster or at least have a little more ebb and flow but i think his his interpretation is just like okay the the scene is being set. There's right. it's stasis. There, there's nothing Here's going your on. Curtains. Yeah. yeah, the curtains are slowly rising. Everybody, just be quiet and and listen. This is just the scene. But then when he has this melody come out, da 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 ba da da. He takes a oh, tiny yeah. bit of time. Um, for those of you that know the score, that's actually a tough part to teach because there's a note that lingers in the right hand. It has to be held while you're changing uh, the left hand pedal and, and harmony. Uh, and so what a lot of people do and, and teachers also, they maybe don't know this, but they, you just, you just play it. It's a D it starts with a D D a G and the G is held. Um, so anyway, I thought he really brought that out just a little bit more and it was really beautiful. And like I said, that's what brought me to the realization. Maybe I haven't heard this version because I don't recall that in my, it's not in my memory anywhere. Um, 
Well, it, and if you listen to like his, he he does play it like a singer would sing it. Um, yes. If, if you if you hear the um, some of the those entrances, you'll notice he comes in just just a touch late, as yeah, if as just if a hair late. Voice right. is trying to get out of out of the mouth. Right. No. And it's a big jump. Uh, you know, if you sing uh, a leap of a fifth or an octave, you know, somewhere over yeah. the rainbow, that's uh, that's not so easy in the voice, especially if it uh, shifts register. So he takes just a little bit extra time to place it. Um, and then the other thing you mentioned, which I like, is he he skirts around the edge of inaudible almost with the left yeah. hand accompaniment. He just some of those notes barely come out. They're just above. um you know, we, we hear it, but just, just not much. And so, yeah, um, it's, it's really incredible. Yeah. I think, um, now we've heard the first aria now, what I would call the first aria, and we're getting yeah. into uh, a little bit more of a, um, a tense struggle, mysterious section. So maybe we can go All on right. from there. So I'm just back up just a little bit. Here sure. we go. Right. There's there's a little bit of angst and and not sure yeah, what's sure. going to come. <laughs> oh, it's getting close. Oh, okay, maybe not. Wow. Okay, I just want to say I Go love ahead. that rest. <laughs> yeah, me so too. So much. Yeah. I love it. So much, and so many people do not wait long enough. <laughs> uh -huh. You can tell this is a live recording or a live uh, performance, but I wonder in the hall that must have been just amazing. Where you hear you hear this frenzied place, da da ba 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 ba, yeah, and then stop. And what's what's gonna? Ha we all know what's gonna happen, but um, that setup is incredible. That, that sullen teenager realizes he can't find his phone. Um, no, I love so, going back to that. I do, I do, I I can't help it. But um, but the way he plays, like the way he emphasizes that that strong, weak, um, Kate or, or um, uh, technique, da 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 da, -da and he holds he holds it just a little bit, just mm -hmm. to kind of like um, it, it just it just it, it it allows the sound just to continue through that whole passage and and it creates a lot of tension going up to that rest which is mm -hmm. like the most tense moment it's just beautiful yeah that so that's a two note slur and we always teach that it's at least in this era uh yeah. typically strong weak unless indicated now when you get into romantic and modern era a lot of composers put accents on the second note so you're going to da dum but in this style, but you, you go, but you have to indicate that. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to show that. Otherwise, it's sort of taken or assumed, um, taken for granted, I guess, for us. But we assume that it's going to be strong, weak, strong, weak, and that might be something that we would teach a student, and they they could say, "Well, I, you know, I don't do it that way, or I don't want to, or my interpretation is such and such." And it's like, well, but the style and the way the music was written after that measure or whatever took into account that you're going to do a strong week. Um, and, 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 uh, and, and I don't see, like if, if a student was going to play that and actually make the case that like, that's their interpretation, 
please just make the case. I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, like, or or I, yeah, maybe try it and and see if you can keep that up or yeah. make it consistent uh, with yeah with. The like, I can see the... if you if you did it as a if you did it as a staccato if you went da 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 like I could see mm-hmm. that being okay. I see what you're doing, but mm-hmm. it but that's not anywhere close to what Mozart's doing. <laughs> yeah, and it throws off the the um the the pulse, I guess, or where the the accents. Yeah. Um, yeah. How, do, how do I say? Like where where you feel the downbeat is. Um, the pulse. Yeah. Yeah. The meter. And it, a little and it bit, takes so. away from. And and here's the big thing. It, and you use the word before consistent. It's mm-hmm. not consistent. Like. Mm-hmm. It would take, it would take a listener, even a, even a, li- a listener that wasn't educated in this stuff or, or was a pianist, it would mm-hmm. take them out of the story that you're trying to tell. Yeah. It I would, think it would it, draw attention it, to that. And right. Yeah. It'd be like, they would say, Oh, that's an interesting or that's cool. Or I hate that. But they wouldn't say, Oh, where's the drama? You know? Mm, yeah, that could be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's tricky to teach those kinds of things, but it's like a, a tenant that you have to teach and, and uh, it's just there and you've got to, yeah. you got to, now he does it in a way well, that but this is, others this might is just not. Such a beautiful example of it being done right. Yeah. Right. And I might not do it exactly the way he does it, but the timing that he takes and the pacing and the, the volume shift, you know, with that decrescendo yeah. on each of the slurs, it's just, these are tiny nuances. We're like picking apart a two note slur in the middle of this piece, <laughs> but, uh, but he just does it so well. So, and, um, and again, I, and I want to emphasize and I, and I purposely let that, that rest go all the way to where he comes back in. Cause I wanted to hear where, when he came back in <laughs> and it was too. just perfect. It was just, it allowed me to, to break that tension and then feel it knowing that he was going to play, but not knowing when he was going to play. And then he just satisfied, he just released it right then. It was just yeah. great. Yeah. And I urge people to look up this piece in different versions and, and test out that section. I don't know where it is in here. Maybe it's like 45, 50 seconds in, but um, you know, it's about, you know, how- it's about two and a half. It's about two, two and a half minutes in. Oh, are we that far in? I guess so. He's yeah. That intro is that, that intro is pretty long. Yeah. Um. So just, te- just compare it to other versions and see how long they take for that pause. And yeah. uh, this is one of the longest, if not the longest that I've heard, uh, but it's great. But, but if, you back it score, up. if you if you look at most scores, it's a whole rest with a fermata. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to take mm-hmm. that, like to me, if you're going to take that as what, what is Mozart trying to say? Mozart's trying to say like. Actually, let me look at the score because I haven't. Uh, let's see here. I hope I'm right. I'm almost positive. It, I'm right. It, at least it the is. It's a, it's a whole rest. With the fermata, yeah. That's right. I just wanted to verify and fact <laughs> check. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's it's a whole rest, so you can really hear that whole whole measure plus. And he right. Really so does so like even if you want to be technical about it, it's uh, so but da 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 three four, four one two two three four, four hold hold yeah. Right. Right. And so it's long and nobody takes it that long. And and, and mm-hmm. I get why. Like, because like, I think a lot of people could say, well, he just means hold it as long as, you know, but, but no, Mozart says four beats plus. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's something, this is another reason why live concerts are so important. If you can hold that suspense in, oh. in air and, and physically, um, I think that gives a lot because we're following 
the anticipate, you know, suspense, yeah. anticipation of what's coming up. And then we maybe expect something big, maybe not, because we ended with the forte crescendo. Yeah. And then it just kind of loses all its steam and the aria comes back, but in a, in well, a lower but, key. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, like it could be like this huge fermata pause and then it goes, ba-bam. Right. Like right. the monster comes out. Right. But he pauses and then it's like this solen aria again, you uh-huh. know? That's where I think of the the staging of this, where it's sort of a snapshot of, okay, um, you know, maybe some woman is in a room and singing to herself, knitting, sewing, right. and and then the bar- you see, uh, go over to the scene with the baritone doing something or some argument uh, with, with the bass, and then they get into a heated something, a fight or brawl, and then all of a sudden stop, end scene, okay, shift back to the woman, maybe another person in the room singing very, you know, melancholy, melancholic sort of melody. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't mind backing up a tiny bit and listening to that again. Sure. Okay. Back up just a little bit. I'm going to go back a little bit further. Okay, that's just some brilliant stuff. Um, again, so it's that same melody, but uh, but it's less tender. It's much more. It's got a lot more confidence in it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got um, that amazing chord that sets up the run. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to remember exactly. Diminished I mean, I can seventh. Play it. I can't, to, yeah. With it with a, um, an appoggiatura, so we've got a suspension from C to B flat, but then it's C sharp E G, and B flat, um, and he goes right into it. There's actually a small rest, but he's already going faster by then, and that yeah. presto run is so brilliant. And interestingly, he um, I was just discussing this again with my student that the uh, diminished seventh arpeggio that ends that um, mm-hmm. cadenza like passage is actually more articulated. It's not so fast. But it's very, uh, it's still virtuosic, and and every note is is shown, and it's just it's very strong. I feel if he just rushed through that and played, you know, it lose it would lose some of its strength. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it actually adds it adds adds a little uh, cadence to that run in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think no, that's, that that was, uh, that was a beautifully played. Like and and um, and, and I imagine that's probably not. I mean, I don't know. Mozart was a virtuoso, so he may have played it like that. But, but I, I, I to me, I, I feel like he would maybe played it a little bit uh, slower because um, he Could just be. flies through that beginning part. It's like a wave. Yeah, uh, that's especially with a lot of pedal. Yeah, maybe we can listen to that. I don't want to. Hmm, I'm trying to think because I would like to listen to at least one of the other versions. Because yeah, I know so how... let's just listen. Let's back up and then we'll listen to just a little bit more. 
and and because here's the truth is it does go back into the dun dun dun, it's just in a different key Mm -hmm. right Um, but here's that run again I love how he holds the pedal there. It's so serious. Yeah. Yeah. Solemn. And you have this little anticipatory thing again. Okay, and I love that moment too. Mm-hmm. That's really good. And he does some really cool technical things. Like there's mm-hmm. even on that run, like he he pulls off that that ba- that low bass note just at the right time, just right when that rest comes in to mm-hmm. allow that to f- to finish, so that that you hear it go, and then goes right back into that melody. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, I, I love what he does. But again, this is where. Um, I would do it differently, but then when I hear somebody this great do it, I think, oh, that's it works. It's wonderful. Um, yeah, that's what I love. You know that before this big run, this is the second presto section. There's another fermata, and he kind of barrels he right, blew through, right that. through it. <laughs> he just yeah, starts he the presto right before he's even done with playing the chord. He hasn't even released it. There's a rest, but whatever. It's he's in the moment. It's dramatic and. Something in the opera, maybe there's a cross fade in the scene, and uh, I love what he does with this. So, and, and again, his like, like he's. I think a lot of people would think he's overpedaling, and and maybe he is. I don't know. He overpedaling on that run because he just lets those chords just like sing all the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I think I can see how in a live setting that would just be really impactful to hear. I that, think it's fine. Hear, it's, hear, I hear everything it's clearly. Yeah, yeah, and and you can hear every note and every overtone that 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 piano is producing like mm-hmm. really clearly and beautifully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he gets a really rich sound out of one note at a time, so it's great. Um, we could go to the D major section, but I think we'll have enough fodder. Uh, you know, we we could just listen to the whole whole piece, and there are certainly videos that listen to a whole piece. But it'd be nice to contrast well, and, and I, I will i will put links to these in the foot in the show notes so okay. i hope people will go and just listen to them um yeah listen to yeah. all this stuff because it's really this is great music and it's and to hear different different performers performing these great pieces of work is really fun mm-hmm. one one interesting thing is that this piece was uh you'll hear in the, the very last section of the piece it's in d major it's very different uh totally different character and uh, Mozart did not complete this piece. So the last four or five measures or eight measures, something like that, the last phrase was written by another composer 
I don't know if anybody has figured out exactly who, but there are a couple conjectures. And of course, I think it's in the style of Mozart. It's, it's a simple ending. But I have heard some people that write their own ending to this uh, and don't and just use exactly what Mozart wrote and and add a small addendum at the end. Um, but the, the, oh, that's what, fun. What this person, what Radu Lupu plays, I think, if I recall, um, is the uh, the one that's by. Uh, maybe Mueller. I, I think that's what historians okay, have concluded. The, the standard, the, the standard, the standard version. Yeah, but but yeah. again, you can. I don't re recall this recording, so he, he could use a different ending. But I think he uses that. But that'd be something to listen for as do, well. Is, when you're do you think it's when he does when he, when he um, does that main D major theme at the lower octave? Is that when? So it's like that's those eight or four or eight measures. I think it's the last eight, but um, yeah, those are probably just added. Okay. So, all right. Well, now which version do we want to so do? Now? I think we should just, there's a Katsaris version, which you can put in the, the notes and he's a very quirky but amazing pianist. I think he's one of the greatest artists living, but I'd really like to hear the Glenn Gould version because I, I think it's so different. And this version has been panned a lot, but uh, I think there's still a lot that can be gained from it. Um, and it's just, it shows you how different you can interpret the same piece of music because there's not, there's not maybe a ton to go on, and if you have this idea that it's it's a mini opera and you're setting the stage and it's just it's a fantasy, so it's already very, very. Um, there's a lot you can do with it. There's a lot of leeway. Yeah. Uh, he really takes a totally different approach to the the beginning. Is so, it is it the longer one? I think so. Um, once once we play it, I'll recognize it. So yeah. Okay. We'll all right. See. Hold on. Maybe we'll just stop it there first. Yeah, you, we. I think there's some explanation you need to do on. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's quite interesting. He does some very strange articulations, which maybe aren't always consistent, and I think that's why people really don't like this. But it's interesting when he when he does it. It's like, okay, well, this this harmony or whatever we've heard it a couple times, and oh, you're going to bring out a, something a little different to draw our attention to that. Okay, right. yeah. I mean, there are no staccatos marked. Or even no. portados marked. It's all legato or slur, some something like that. And yet he he somehow brings something out with his his articulation. And it's kind of him. It's quirky. Uh, again, not at all what I would do. But well, somehow... my understanding for is, is Gould kind of saw himself as a 
co-composer with the composer mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when he performed, which, which, which I, I think there's a lot of merit to as a performer. Like you have to like make it your own, any piece that you play. Sure. Uh, but I think he, t- he takes that to another level. Yeah. And he did a lot of, um, arrangements of things and you know he he was such an eccentric uh, man and he actually stopped performing live concerts because he didn't want any of the imperfections that come from it and the audience could cough or that this or that he he had an aversion to people in some ways he was a recluse and and he would wear a an overcoat all the time he was from, you know lived in toronto and he'd wear an overcoat the whole year and gloves you know um and just didn't want to see a lot of people. But in any case, that's just the man. Uh, he also sat on a very low bench. He also sang when he played. Yeah. Sometimes he would like hum but along. You can, hear in, you can hear in this intro, you hear him singing. Yeah, you can hear a little bit of that humming. Um, but he got really into recording and almost became a, a composer from the recording aspect where he would record a couple different versions of a piece and kind of splice them together. And that became his, his artistic expression, something that you he created recordings of pieces that you wouldn't be able to actually play. You couldn't play it like that, but somehow when you spliced a couple different recorded uh, versions together, you, you came to this amalgamation of, of sorts that was just wonderful or in his mind, wonderful. And that's what he presented. So I think he is that composer and performer. And we see that happening now. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that taking, uh, you know, taking recordings and manipulating them in, in certain ways that that can never be done in real life is, right. is kind of the way a lot of music is made now. Yeah. Well, a lot of it too is, is mixed and it's almost like you, a lot of the artists today in, in all genres, they might not be able to play through or do something, you know, at, at such a high level on, on one take, whatever they are just using the medium to be part of the artistic expression, which is good and bad. I mean, it, it's fine, but uh, I always say that they should be proficient and trained and have the skill set to be able to do it anyway. And then you can, you can add on top of that by splicing. It's yeah. you know when we talked with Brett Leonard, I remember um, with recording engineering that there's there's so much you can do with with it, but there there are limits. But there's this funny video or ad or whatever for what the recording engineer does, and you hear this beautiful you know recording it sounds awesome and you see the recording engineer sweating and moving all these dials and making it sound perfect and then you go into the recording um studio and you hear just a horrible voice it just sounds awful (laughs) but um it's the end result is so great because of the recording engineer not because of the artist Um, well yeah and i think i i think like as long as you're transparent in what you're doing Mm -hmm. like nobody nobody was um guessing if Glenn Gould was, was actually playing those things. Right. Like he wasn't saying, he wasn't presenting it as if, Oh, you look, look at this impossible thing that I can, I have figured out the key to playing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was, I mean, I don't think he was, I thought he, I think he was just saying like this, these, this is how this particular things could sound and look at the, look at this artistic expression that um and what this could mean to somebody you know yeah i think in his hands this kind of uh, manipulation is artistic um but i know plenty of uh large ensembles and and soloists that uh that use the technology really to their advantage and and can't produce and look i've i've used splices in my own recordings uh when i've played through things it's not note perfect so i've spliced something in 
Um, I'm proud. There, there's only one recording in, in uh, that I have that the entire piece is just one take. And that's, that's rare. If any recording yeah. that you're yeah, buying in the store nowadays on a classical recording, the average is something like, I think Brett told me once, it's like three to 400 average yeah. splices. And there are some that he's heard of, which are, you know, 2000 splices wow. in recording. And I think on my, my first album I released, I had like 20 some splices and my next was like 40 or 50 splices, which is quite low, but you know, I, I had a limited budget too, and I wanted to still create a professional product, but, well, and uh, and that also becomes the problem is the two, th two quick comments on that. Number mm -hmm. one, the expectation of the audience when, when somebody receives, it's the same problem with pop music. Mm -hmm. Like you expect a certain sound and you expect it to sound a certain way. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, and what that means is that even if you're a great artist, a great singer, a great performer, you are bound by the fact that you have to make it sound a certain way in order for it to be commercially viable. Yes. Um, and that's a difficult thing to kind of get around. Um, but the other thing is that that's what makes live recording and mm -hmm. live performances so vital and so important because, um, to have the energy and to have to be in a position to fail and to mm -hmm. be able to perform is a rare and exceptional and exciting thing for everybody to experience. Yeah. That vulnerability, I think it's, it's so human. And that's why I like this recording. Um, the, the, the previous one we just heard even more because it's just, it's live and all, all the risks there were taken. Maybe yeah. he would have done it slightly differently in a recording studio, but I, I, I love it. Um, and I think with Gould, he was, of course, he had an ego, but he was such the consummate artist. Um, and he had such a strong idea of things that he said, you know what, this is my vision. This is what I'm going to do. And, and damned if other people don't like it and if they pan me for it. And that's, he didn't care. He just did yeah. it for himself. And that's I, another. I want to hear a little bit more of this. Yeah, yeah, sure. We've been talking about it. We haven't ever heard it anymore. So let's keep going. All right. Yeah, let's pause Whoa. it. <laughs> right? <laughs> Whoa. Uh, Whoa is right. Yeah. How different is that? It's yeah. not it's not the same piece. Yeah, it's like almost it's not literally the not the same piece. Yeah. <laughs> it it's cool. Like I love it. There's something so 
I don't know when it was this was made, but there's something so 70s about it in a way. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is probably um, from the 50s ish. I'm not exactly okay. sure. He he did a lot it's, of these Mozart recordings. He was ahead of his 50s, time. Uh, 60s, yeah. <laughs> I I there was there's something that's very um I really like it. It's it's like a um like a clock that's losing its wind. Mm. Like it's just that's a good way to put it. Slowing down. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'll be honest. This is I love Gould. He's one of my favorites for so many things. But this piece is a it's a little bit tough for me because it's, I just it's so distorted, but it's so sort of consistent. You know, he has that um, left hand and he does ba 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 ba. Yeah. There's nothing marked. That would change the articulation on the little um, dyads that are opening. Nope. But he sometimes somehow does short, long, short, mm, short, long. No, short, it's like long. a wind up music box is yeah. what it sounds like to me. And even even yeah. when, even to the point of like it's so slow that when he does that chord, it's almost like the the like I said, the winding is going mm-hmm. down, and so he plays that do 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 do. Yeah, it's so weird, you but know, it's it's. I chuckle when you have dum bum bum yeah bum ba dum bum ba ba bum <laughs> and even the even and even the space between the intro and that first line is uh-huh. so long uh-huh. it's like there's this empty space and then da da da, da. but yep. but I will say like his articulations are gorgeous mm-hmm. and just real like everything um yeah, everything like it's really it's quite beautiful, and his technique is quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's wild. It is wild. It, it's it's weird, and like I say, I I enjoy listening to him now later in life when I've kind of gone through different stages of loving him and hating him and thinking he's is terrible, and then thinking he's one of the greatest ever and all that. Um, I have an immense respect, but. Even then, I this this one's a little bit too weird for okay. me. Okay, and right? I I've got to get to the run. I got to see how okay. he handles the run. So so let's, let's keep going. Let's, let's listen to up, to up to where he gets to the run. That's well, like a big bell. beats of his tempo <laughs> I think it was this is so strange to me da. Da, 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 da. it's like a, it's like a little toy march like uh-huh. a toy soldier da, da, da. <laughs> I 
it's almost not classical era. It's, I mean, it's like Bach bringing Bach. I was just going to say that sounded like that could have been a prelude or something. Yeah. I mean, like a Bach prelude. So strange. It was um, weird. He's arpeggiating things that you would do on a harpsichord to prolong the sound. Um, and yet this would be, I mean, a forte piano would also die away. The sound would die away more than a contemporary you know, modern instrument, but it would hold longer than a, than a harpsichord. So strange. And, and, he, was, and even that, 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 um, because of how he played it, I mean, cause it really does. He, there is not a whole lot of dynamic range. Like he mm. squeezed that dynamic range down. So when you get to that, where where in the in the first version, when you got to that long uh, whole note pause, it was so dramatic, and you could just feel the silence. Mm-hmm. Like on this one, it was like an uncomfortable feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, uh, what's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Which is kind of, I, I think that I think that maybe sums up the first half of this piece that he did. It's kind of uncomfortable. Yeah. Which I don't. It's not that I dislike it. I kind yeah. of like it a lot. Like it is I'm different. Way yeah. into this. Yeah, but, but it, anyway, it's this is a great, uh, you know. An interesting version. I always like to have this version side by side because it's just so out there. Um, and it gives you pause to think, okay, what's what's really possible here? But, um, it's, it's, it's just wild. Well, I, yeah. I, I think we have to end on that. <laughs> I think we might I, have I to, yeah. I don't think there's another way. So we're going to do this, do this again, mm-hmm. but we're going to cover um, the romantic era and maybe, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we're going to cover the romantic era and the modern era, whether we do that in one or two episodes, who mm-hmm. knows? We'll see how it goes. But yeah. um, Elias, this has been a blast. I've oh, really been a lot enjoyed. of fun. Thank, Mike. You, thank you for sharing your expertise and, and sharing this, your insight on this is we we try (laughs) it's both of us we have a lot to offer and and add and i just love discussing this stuff with you and uh sometimes hearing it again i haven't heard this version glenn gould's for many years when i first learned the piece but i I bring it back every few years to play and now i'm hearing it again like whoa okay so yeah i appreciate it it. i mean it is a trip it is you know he was yeah, it, I'll just say it's a trip. We I'll pink Floyd the wall going the next time that we play that piece. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, we'll do this again for sure. I can't wait. I know we have some really cool things coming up pretty soon. So we do. We have some other. Yeah, so we have other interviews coming up, and then yeah, we'll definitely we'll you know continue this music marathon of love. So sounds good. Uh, you are listening to End of Love Remains. first of 23 installments requested by Dr. Levitt. We're trying to be in compliance here because we're taking him and that whole organization down.